Hey, and welcome to the Hashtag Angels podcast, where we bring you conversations about the latest tech trends with the people inventing and shaping them. I'm Jana Messerschmidt, and this week I'm joined by my co-host, April Underwood. The, I don't know, ethnographer or something in me thinks that there's going to be a little period where people are like, let me out of my house. Like, I don't want to look at screens. I want to go to music festivals and dance in the park. And we sit down with Claire Hughes Johnson. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about imposter syndrome, and I kind of sick of it. Claire needs no introduction. She's the COO of Stripe, a fintech startup that is currently Silicon Valley's most valuable private company. Today, we talk about the parallels between political campaigns and startups, what the COO job really entails, and how Claire thinks about angel investing. All right, let's get started. Where are you, by the way? I'm outside of Boston. I'm oh, on the wow. East Coast. Yeah, oh, we moved gosh. back here last year. Great. I know. Are you enjoying it? Crazy. I would say it's a weird time to move, uh, and it's a weird time for your kids to start a new school, but yeah. um, I think it's going to be great. So this is like a permanent move. This is. It's well, where, I mean, as much as anything is. Yeah. This is where my husband and I both grew up in this area, and all of our family is around here. So Good. it was time... My daughter was applying to high schools, and that was a good moment to think about life. And Sure. So, I know. It's Bay Area high school application process, I think, is a real We did that one. We did both. We, yeah, we exactly. We did both. It was. It was quite a process. Um, and then it was sad because she couldn't visit anywhere she got in because the pandemic, you know. Yeah. What I've decided is is that there needs to be a GitHub for um, school application processes. Mm, that is a great idea. You it's could just reuse all of people's stuff. All the tricks, all <laughs> the stuff. My this isn't a funny that funny story, but when I had my daughter, uh, I was working on Google Checkout, which is funny um, in retrospect. But and <laughs> my husband, <laughs> my husband also worked on. Uh, Randomly, he was on like an analytics team, but he was doing work for the project. And he was also at Google at the time. And we literally had the baby and like a few hours later are in the room with the baby. And I don't know why I answered my damn phone, but I answered my phone and it's our PMM. (laughs) And he's like, oh, my God, I didn't think you're going to answer, you know, but I'm looking for (laughs) Jesse. And I was like, he was trying to track down some data for a presentation and and we're like, I was like, we just had a baby, Tom. Like, can you? Like, <laughs> no, but it was, it was funny and classic life, you know, classic tech life. I mean, when I first came back from my first maternity leave, I was like, I don't know if I'm making good decisions. I'm so sleep right. deprived, but I got through it. I got carpal tunnel in the thumb because I switched to doing all my computing on my phone oh. with my right hand and too oh, much Instagram of, yeah. scrolling and so forth. So, you know, you got to watch out early yeah, motherhood. You can have a, yeah, postpartum injury, essentially. <laughs> you really can. Postpartum working mom injury. Yeah. <laughs> well, Claire, we are so excited to have you on the Hashtag Angels pod. Oh, it's great to be on. We loved getting just people together and creating community. You do. And with COVID, we just haven't been able to do that. So we decided to launch a pod and kind of try to do the same thing just in the digital version. Love it. Good to see you both. It's the creator economy. I don't know if you've heard of it. I've heard of I've heard a little bit about it. Yeah. I have. Well, yeah, we're just trying to be Gen Z. Um, how are we doing? <laughs> 
you do a good job of relating to the youths, Jana. Yeah. I mean, you got Actually, in on Cameo early. You know, you like you've got you, your finger on and, the pulse. And you guys invested in Clubhouse. You guys have all the the angles, huh? I think though, angel investing though, to me, is I mean, this sounds now I sound really old, but you want to be talking to founders and a lot of them are of a, you know, younger and have like, it's exciting. You get into new tech, you get into new ideas, you're meeting new people. They happen to, for me, be a lot younger than me, but that's great. Right. That's, that's who you want to hang around with that kind of energy. Totally. So I do have a like 80 something year old new neighbor who is sharp as a tack and, <laughs> and she is a hoot, I got to tell you. But like my point is multi-generational exposure is good for you. Well, so should we dive into your journey in tech? Yeah. I mean, I feel like my 20s were just a completely random set of acts <laughs> that I was just <laughs> figuring out what was I going to do. And I really thought I was going to go to law school and work in government and the whole thing, maybe Supreme Court justice eventually, as we all, as we all think. Uh, but I started to realize that maybe I didn't want to be a lawyer. And I ended up kind of last minute in business school. And it was helpful because business school helped me translate, okay, what I've been doing in politics, and I did a little journalism and other is just kind of marketing, right? It's like marketing and strategy. It's actually very entrepreneurial too. You raise a ton of money and you spend a lot of it really fast. (laughs) Um, No, but it was very, you know, you're scrappy. You're doing seven jobs. Uh, So campaigns are actually great training for startups, but I ended up in business school, but I actually ended up um, consulting to media companies. So DirecTV, Dow Jones, the New York Times, and of course, what were they all facing? They were all facing the internet. Uh, the internet was happening. Uh, big disruption of that industry. They didn't really at the time see it. Uh, but of course, I, my job was to study what was happening to their business. And I, I think what I was looking for in my career was impact, right? You want to do something important. You want to do something that matters. And it became very obvious that tech is where that impact and for me, that's about, you know, economic growth, job creation. Like, how can we do things that help? You know, I think those are, I, have, I still have the idealistic Silicon Valley view that tech can be a helper. Um, and so I quit my job. My husband and I, now husband, then boyfriend, we were like, we're just going to move to the West Coast. And it wasn't like, let's go get jobs in tech. But it was like, let's get out there. Let's see. Uh, and I you just start networking. And actually the dot-com kind of bust wasn't that far in the past. And so everyone thought we were crazy (laughs) and including our families who were kind of like, don't you need to get jobs? Like, and then we were getting, we got engaged. We were unemployed. Um, And so no one thought that was like the smartest couple move, you know, aren't you going to need some income to fund your married life? Anyway, but (laughs) I threw a friend of mine from business school, actually. Um, I met, well, she went to undergrad with Cheryl Sandberg, and then a friend of theirs, Cheryl, had hired a woman named Laura uh, DeBonis, and she's like, why don't you talk to Laura? She's at this company called Google, and I was like, I love Google, like the product, right? And and I said, but how? what, what jobs would they have for me? Like, I'm, I'm an English major. I'm not a, you know, and ended up, fast forward, in interviewing for a management role in Cheryl's organization, and that's 
all she after like 12 interviews and writing an essay about how I was a rational person and taking an exam on AdWords, I was able to receive a job offer. It was a long process. I planned my whole wedding during that process. I was like, okay, this is a long process. But I eventually got hired and that started a whole bunch of things that I think built, you know, certainly I had to learn a lot about tech, but fundamentally consulting and sort of political organizing skills are pretty useful for scaling a company. So I was able to build on a foundation of some some raw abilities and actually being a manager then at Google, management skills, not a lot of them. So I was like, I've got, <laughs> I've got some management skills. I ran some consulting projects. I could do this. So what? What was the first job that you had there? Google at the time when I joined was like 1,800 people. I think Cheryl's org was a few hundred. And I was one of, let's say, nine AdWords managers that had just gotten hired because they were scaling and they were figuring it out. And I, it's the biggest place I'd ever worked. I was like, this place is really bureaucratic. I was like, this "This is so big. I don't want to be just one of many AdWords managers. So I was sort of feeling like what else is there that I could, where I could add value. And I ended up taking over leading the Gmail, what was then the Gmail support team or Gus, Gmail user support, um, right after Gmail launched. And which, and Gmail was the first sort of complicated, not AdWords product that Google launched. And they were, and we just had to figure out like, how are you going to help users? It's a free product, but it's, if you all remember early Gmail, it was kind of a, a, a frame breaking change and how email was Mm -hmm. everyone kept losing all their mail because of the threading (laughs) and they couldn't find it and like it was there was a lot of really pissed off users (laughs) Uh, and confused they were mostly confused um and so i had to figure out how to get support for them without spending a ton of money in you know like 60 languages as fast as possible but it ended up being great because i ended up working a lot with product and eng um we got all tied at the hip together, building Gmail and rebuilding Gmail. Uh, and then that became, you know, Google Apps was part of my career at, at Google. And that grew out of Gmail and some acquisitions that Google did. Mm-hmm. And then I eventually built consumer operations, which was all the support teams for all the consumer products that were springing up and YouTube and, you know, integrating YouTube when it got acquired. That was like my first phase of Google was a very ops heavy role. It sounds like to some degree it wasn't recognized early on that these consumer free products would need like operational support. Um, and maybe you guys kind of figured that out um, through trial by fire yeah. with Gmail and then realized, oh, anything we build is actually going to need con ops. Yeah, it's going to need a model. And actually some of the models we came up with, AdWords needed them, like everybody needed them. But, mm-hmm. you know, Google, like many, there's some hubris, as you both know, mm-hmm. in young companies. It's like, oh, the product's going to be so good. There's no support. You know? <laughs> uh, no, that was not the case. But those same products, as far as I know, sell themselves too. So that's what yeah, I heard. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you worked on a lot of those software products, but then you yeah. you you actually oversaw some of the the AV stuff um, near the end of your tenure there too, right? My Google career was like three parts. One was very operational. One was like revenue sales, AdWords, and the third part was sort of product DGM 
And then ending working on self-driving cars, which was great. And actually, it's a good trial for like, do I want to go to a smaller company and try that's earlier stage and try to build something, which I think I did want to do. But I, I checked it out uh, in-house with that project. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that was the hard part about leaving was I was working on something really exciting. But it also wasn't quite... I mean, I'm used to scaling a product that's out in the market, right? And we were still mostly R&D phase and a little BD, which was a good experience for me because I hadn't done much of that, but not about to scale. <laughs> so right. I, I think you all know that now. I've been at Stripe for six and a half years and we still aren't seeing a lot of the cars scaling. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's the, and, and I, I think the next question you guys are going to ask me, cause everyone does, is, will there be self-driving cars? Do I, I actually stay in touch with a lot of the engineers from that team. They were so great. And we had, a, I mean, really talented. Um, one of them is now the co-CEO, which is exciting for Waymo, mm -hmm. but yeah. others all left and formed their own companies in yes. this space. <laughs> and so I do chat to them and keep tabs on those companies. I think my answer is there will be, yes, we will have autonomous vehicles. The Everyone in that I don't know, I wouldn't call it an industry, but if you talk to people who've been working on it for a long time, they'll say that everyone's like, in the next 10 years for the last 30 years. <laughs> and so I don't want to be one of those people who's like, in the next 10 years, and then it's 30 years later. It really is, it's a really tricky regulatory situation, right? If you think about it. I mean, you can get the tech, I mean, there has to be like safety critical tech, like, like planes autopilot, uh, but without a pilot there eventually to take over. And then you have to sort of, there's the social adoption. Right. It's funny. I did my undergrad in hardware engineering and my very first project, my freshman year of undergrad was a self-driving car. Now, granted, my self-driving car was like two inches by three inches and it went around like a little black surface with white masking tape. Still. But like... That was the dream, even back in the late 90s. <laughs> so it is the dream. I mean, think of the, I mean, the safety. And I mean, of course, there's like the bad version where we all are having our own self. You know what I mean? You can imagine, yeah, you know, hey, car, circle the block while I run in and grab this, you know, item from the store. Like, that's not going to be great for society. But, but point is, lots of things to figure out. Yeah. Be good to get these on the, on the road. So you, I mean, you were at Google for a decade. Yeah. I'm sure you had many different opportunities to go and join different startups or, you know, I'm sure Cheryl was like, hey, here's this cool thing over at Facebook. Um, but curious, like what made you finally decide to leave for Stripe? What was it about Stripe that was so compelling? Yeah, you know, it it is funny because I had, I was lucky. I met a bunch of founders and companies in different stages toward the end of my Google career. Um, my name was out there somehow. These things happen. And I started to think, you know what? Maybe there isn't the thing for me. I'm pretty picky, <laughs> I think, in the end. <laughs> mm -hmm. Took me a while to not waste people's time, like to understand I probably wanted to do B2B and it probably needed to be a growth stage. Like, I, it took me some time to figure that out, which was annoying for everyone involved. But once I'd figured that out, you know, there's only so many companies growth stage B2B that are like in that moment. And I realized, like, maybe not the moment's not right now. And this sounds like a dating story whenever I tell it. But so then I had given up mm -hmm. and I was like, fine, I'm doing self-driving cars for the next few years. Fine. 
And I got a call to meet Patrick Carlson. Um, and I actually said no, because I really was like, oh, payments. Really? Like, I don't, I don't know. I did check out. <laughs> right. I had done actually multiple commerce projects at Google, like my Google failures, which you learn from the most, right? Right. Definitely. Uh, were those, were commerce related, payments related. <laughs> so I was like, oh God, I'm like, you know, I don't know. I think I'm cursed when it comes. So I, I think the curse has been reversed. Uh, we'll just say that. But, <laughs> yeah. but I, what was it? So it was ultimately down to the following criteria. And I think number, and you guys would say the same thing if you were thinking, I mean, you're, you're more entrepreneurial investors, but one is the founders. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have to be fantastic and the chemistry with them. If you're going to take a role like COO has to really be there Two for me, the mission. And I know I sound like idealist Silicon Valley person again, but it had to matter. It had to be something important. And that's where the B2B thing comes for me. Like I really care a lot about job creation and like, how can we not be net destroyers of economic value, but creators and um, working on something that's like infrastructural is very appealing to me. I got a little bit over the ads model as the only way to, to monetize <laughs> the web. I was like, something has to have to be more than this. Um, and so the impact and the mission and like, what could the company really be that could matter uh, was important. And fundamentally that it could be that, you know, I looked at the business and I think you all know that it's never, it's kind of a trap to look at the total addressable market because you're usually inventing it. Yep. But in the case of commerce, you can look at some basic numbers and say, there's plenty of opportunity here. And you know that it's weird. Online payments and commerce really is one of these frontiers that nobody had quite cracked very well. Like it just... Stripe clearly had figured out, hey, developers are going to be making decisions on this. They need tools. Let's build them better tools and let's use APIs to get them the tools and take over. And if you've been in a company, which you both have, it's like the billing and payment stuff is like the back. No one wants to work on that. It's so brutal, Mm -hmm. right? So like if you could just use an API and get someone else to build a better product for you online for online payment infrastructure. Yeah. Hell, why wouldn't you do that? So it just was obvious that the traction was there. The demand was there. There was plenty of market opportunity. And, and then the people that I met, like the culture of the company, it just, I, I loved so many of the I mean, stripes is what we call it, you know, stripes that I met in the process. <laughs> and, and I felt like, Hey, I could add value, but I also learn like you want that balance of, I, I know what they, I think I know what they need right now. I can help them build it. But I'm going to get to do stuff I've never done before and that and learn myself. And that just started to become very clearly. I said to my husband one night, I had driven up to SF and spent like five hours meeting with John and Patrick. And I drove home and I called him. I said, look, if I don't take this job, like I'm not ever leaving Google. And he's like, well, I think you are leaving. And I was like, I think I am. I think I'm taking this job. But I, you know, I realized it, it was just the right move. Um, but we took a lot of time together to get to know each other. And when you were going through that process, like, were they looking for, were they looking for a COO? Were they like, did they know what they were looking for? Or was it almost like a joint process to kind of help them discover what they needed and how yeah. and whether or not you fit into that? Because I, I think it's an important part to tell. Cause I think it's people don't necessarily know where opportunities like the one you've taken are because they're not like posted. It's no, not like no, <laughs> Stripe not. needs a chief operating officer. No. <laughs> so. They, they really, the first time I met Patrick was actually 
February and I didn't join Stripe till October, right? And we didn't, we weren't meeting that entire time. The initial meeting April was exactly that question. They were not sure. And so Patrick and I had more of a discussion. It was like very meta, like, is it a COO? Am I looking for a head of sales? Like, I know that, I mean, I think he was feeling the growth, like Stripe that year went from like 50 or 60 people to 180. And I joined at about 160. But they were starting to feel the scale and the traction, right? Right in that moment. But it was early still in that moment. And I think the board and investors were sort of saying, hey, how about, you know, add some more leaders, like add. And they didn't know. They weren't sure it was COO. They weren't sure. I mean, it was really very much, I think, maybe it's a head of sales or chief revenue officer or whatever. Yeah. And I think the fact that I built and run sales teams, ultimately they came back to, all right, the fact that you can get that off the ground and that you're going to add value in these other areas brought them back to thinking that was the right move. But I I could have gone another way. Absolutely. And I tell a lot, a lot of founders come to me, they're like, I need a COO. I'm like, do you really know what you mean when you say that? (laughs) Like, I'm not sure most companies do necessarily. Right. So Yeah. I'm curious, like at Stripe, what did COO mean? Like what has been in your purview and what do you think like a, a good COO role actually entails? First of all, COO is like whatever. If you're at a growth stage kind of company, it's whatever the company needs at any given moment. So it's <laughs> going to be changing. It Well, in line with your skills. The thing that also happened as I was getting recruited for these roles is a few people would contact me and they they kind of say they wouldn't take the time to get to know me. What was I good at? What did I think I could could help with? Like where did, what did their business need? They would kind of be like, can I just give you everything? <laughs> and then I'll just do product. And I I kind of was like, you know what, that's actually not the right way to use me. I mean I I if you really push me, sure I can run legal and finance and every function, but I don't think that's a smart move. I don't know that mm-hmm. I would, I don't know that I would give me the finance team, you know, but you know, it, but it was just like more about a process of discovering what does the company need right now? What will complement the founders and any other mm-hmm. leaders in the company? And then what does this particular person bring to the table? And like, how can you make it the role and the portfolio really match? And by the way, my portfolio change has changed a lot over the years and it's changing again right now. And I think that's because Stripe is changing so much and that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, in fact, we portfolio shift a lot across the executive team, which I think is really healthy because what you needed at one moment is very different than another one. When I came in, the role was basically, we had a biz ops team, which was a small kind of general athlete, do whatever it takes. They were kind of helping do sales and helping with product stuff, support sales, And then pretty quickly, our international scaling, we had started to hire Mm -hmm. country leads and we were figuring that model out in those countries. And then I also pretty quickly took on the people functions, which at the time was like three recruiters. Let's not kid ourselves. (laughs) But um, and and that was where the start point was. And then over time, it's more it morphed. I had marketing and then I didn't. And then I had a real estate and workplace, which I've happily given over to someone else recently, um, which I loved. But believe me, again, I'm not going to pretend, you know, am I an awesome, deep real estate strategy expert? Not, no enough to be dangerous. Um, but yeah, it's whatever is needed. And and I think it's a, it's a leverage point, ideally, a bandwidth creator for founders, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. But they're not going to be, they have to be very involved, mm-hmm. right? Yep. 
And so it's a lot about partnering and partnering pretty openly and effectively. Yeah. I love that you had the people function for a chunk of your time. That was really part of the deal. I mean, that, and I think, by the way, when I said, like, what was the other stuff that I think Patrick and John decided, and Billy, who was also at the, uh, the company then, it still is, was in our interviews, I talked a lot about building the org effectively. And, like, mm-hmm. what was it going to take to have the kind of culture that could withstand the growth I think we were going to see and scale in a healthy way, right? You, you just want healthy scale as much as you can. It's hard. But, and... I think they realized this hadn't been an area they'd been thinking about as strategically and had maybe some blind spots on the org building part. And Mm -hmm. I get really passionate about that. And so me coming in and saying, yeah, I can run ops, I can run support and sales, but I also, and build sales, but I would love to do the the people side. I think it's critical. And so that that was actually part of my remit for a long, long time. And I mean, it seems like, you know, you kind of always look at like talent density and pools of incredible talent and where they go. And Stripe has been just such a magnet for incredible people coming out of other great companies. But I mean, you, I'm curious, like how you thought about forming and crafting that culture from these early days. And I remember, gosh, this was years ago. I remember talking to Patrick one time at a friend's birthday party about the Netflix culture, Uh because like... You know, I, I come from Netflix. I'm part of that cult. And like, I just lived and breathed the culture and so many phenomenal pieces of it. But how did you kind of think about the formation of culture from these early days? Again, I wasn't at the very early days. And I think a lot, a lot of Stripe's reputation, particularly with engineering talent, uh, was formed early, like before me. Yep. Uh, and I think it came from a combination of putting out some like open source and dev work and sort of engaging with the developer community as one of them. And it being clear, there was sort of technical excellence internally and that it was excited to meet other, I mean, a lot of Stripe's early hires were users. And then they do these events where people would come in the office and code and like just jam together and then become employees. And so good job or have some kind of contest. Right. (laughs) But anyway, I would say that the early really investing in getting out into your ecosystem for your company matters. And, and Stripe did that. And it, and it was lucky because it was a developer product, initial, like most yeah. initially. So that's an easy uh, ecosystem to sort of go dev to dev was, our, was distribution essentially early on. I think continuing that and investing and expanding that to other functions and to hiring like globally was probably where I spent a lot of my time. And I wish I could explain like what, what was the thing. It's a combination of you know, how you hire, how you onboard. Uh, We started to really talk about our operating principles and some of our sort of cultural foundational pieces. It's weird to like say culture. Don't you find that when you try to talk about culture, you're kind of killing it? (laughs) There's this, no, there's this professor at MIT who is this iceberg image where he's like culture, you can just see the tip of the iceberg, but it's really the unsaid it's yes. the unconscious beliefs and values. And so I always feel a little like, eh, I'm talking about culture. But really, it's like it's like when you're parents, you guys are both parents. Mm-hmm. It's what you do. It's not what you say that you're mm-hmm. going to do, right? It's your actions and what you spend your time on. Um, and and that's not an easy thing to, to describe. But other than say Stripe is very thoughtful, very rigorous about a lot of key processes, if mm-hmm. 
and experiences. I mean, we, we kind of obsess about our users and I think we obsess about the, early, especially early on for employees, their experiences. And then, you know, we really care about great talent and getting them the ability to contribute. And there's a lot happening. You know, you want to be about part of something where you're building a ton of, I mean, initially the product was more simple, but it's gotten a lot of com- lot more complicated. There's plenty of opportunities to build new things at Stripe, which people love. Would you ever have imagined, like, when you started that Stripe would branch into all these different areas? I mean, Atlas, Treasury, like, I mean, it's just, it's such a behemoth now. It's so incredible. I I did, well, Patrick actually talked about Atlas during my uh, interview process, um, and I got really excited. I was like, we have to build that. Oh, my God. Because it's really a big expression of the mission uh, of Stripe. But um, I kind of... I mean, I did like anyone, any smart decision maker, I did a sort of like worst case scenario if I joined Stripe base case and then upside. And the upside for Stripe, I think if you really knew it at all, was definitely an expansion. This is like increase the GDP of the internet is the mission. That is not, you know, take credit card payments. That is a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) And, And commerce infrastructure and really rethinking it for online. Uh, could mean a lot of things, right? Uh, almost too many things. But I, I knew that we would start to, you, the question was like, when and how do we get the order of operations right? And how do you focus on the right things? Which, of course, we did some of that well and some of that not well. I mean, everyone, as you both know, companies are never as good as their best press and never as bad as their worst press, right? It is just yes. like rough on the inside. You are doing your best. Mm-hmm. But I had I had hope, but I will tell you, Stripe has exceeded my upside case, <laughs> uh, both in terms of products at this stage for us, but also just like overall growth and, it, and, and just achieving ambitions that were really lofty mm-hmm. uh, six years ago, pretty... Pretty much a piece of paper, not a, not a reality. <laughs> uh, well, so so the last year has been a year like no other. So, what are some of the ways in which, like this, just the the kind of exogenous events that have occurred yeah. around the pandemic? Like, what has that meant for the business? Like, what are, you know? Yeah. I'd love to. Yeah, you know, yeah, you you probably know I've started a company in the local commerce space, I making a great. bet that the acceleration we've seen over the last year was sort of like long overdue and that it, it's yeah. only going to continue. But I'd love to hear some of your, what you guys are seeing and what you predict in terms of like what sticks and if there's anything that pulls back that was kind of a temporary moment in time sort of situation. Yeah. I mean, of course, if I knew the answer to this, someone would be paying me to tell you. I, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I'm interested in what you both think, actually. Maybe we should have a little moment where we all speculate here. Great. Um, the... It was, for every business, I think the last year has been like Jedi level leadership and execution. And like, how do you help people navigate this personally, professionally? How do you keep your company on the rails? In the end, Stripe really benefited from this macro trend. But look, there was a huge moment in last March where I think everybody had to gut check and say, our economy is going to collapse, right? Uh, Is... Mm -hmm. Um, we had a, we have Stripe is luckily, we have millions of, of users, right? Millions of merchants. And that's a lot of diversity in our portfolio. But I'm sure as you both can imagine, there's parts of that portfolio of users who really travel have suffered. And how could we work with them and credit challenges and you name it? It was not, you know, this is hard. And then obviously parts of the portfolio that are soaring 
um, with like a lot of April, you know, to what you're getting at, like anything on demand delivery, food delivery, you know, Instacart, you name it. But there were some folks who, you know, and then there were some second order changes as the first order changes happened. Um, we also, you know, have Wayfair. You can imagine everyone's at home. People are mm-hmm. uh, definitely redecorating. I, I can attest. I've also <laughs> been doing that. But yeah. I, I would say that I think it very much accelerated the move online of more than people, like especially your average, your mom, right? Like what your mom thinks she could do with her, my mom is 75 years old, with her phone and her laptop or iPad, she has gone from thinking a set of things, Amazon, you know, mm-hmm. um, and she's savvy. She's like pretty tech savvy, but she's not thinking she'd never have gotten food delivered, like from a grocery store. Like that's right. like yep. a cr- crazy idea. Uh, or this sort of order ahead and go pick up like mm-hmm. that, that wouldn't yep. have happened. Um, and so I think that acceleration is not going away of people realizing, Hey, there's a lot more you can do with your phone or online, uh, sort of transaction, commerce, service, even organizing services, because the more like everything went contactless, right? right. In a lot of ways, mm-hmm. which accelerated, I mean, I think we're going to see the ramifications in restaurants, in how you pay, how you, you know, and you, and we saw innovations in some of those models help some new companies, but that's really more in like the Bay Area. It wasn't expanding. So I think that's going to stay. I think that um, April, I'm actually really interested in what you think about this. I care a lot about these local businesses. Right. I I think you're still going to see people, people want to be together, right? Mm-hmm. I, this is like also like going back to offices. I don't think offices go away. I think maybe how we think about how often we need to be in them or why do we need to be together, you know, starts to change. I don't think local commerce goes away, but I think that the methods of it start to expand. Um, yeah. is that what, that's probably what you think. Well, I mean, what I mean, you you guys have built something that has really democratized the ability for just the whole classes of people to be able to take payments um, through, you know, whether it's online That's or anywhere hope. else, That's which is amazing. Um, the The trick is that it takes a lot more than being able to take payments to be able to actually have online commerce be a meaningful part of your business. And yeah. so, you know, local businesses, um, thankfully, can stand up online stores using some of the e-com platforms that are out there. But nobody goes to the stores. And I mean, there's no foot traffic on the yeah. web. And so, you know, you don't just like stumble upon the website for the business yeah, the that happens to be downtown boutique. from you. Right. Exactly. exactly. And so, you know, what we're realizing with what we're building at Nearby is that ultimately these businesses need an e-commerce team. And it's the economics are ever, never going to make sense for there to be an e-commerce team for every In-house. single local business. Yeah. And so we're doing that at the community level right. where you can sort of point the, the you know, the customer acquisition, the editorial, the com- you know, content plus commerce playbook that, you know, has already worked so well for so many D2Cs and sort of digital first commerce companies, but that local businesses have just never really played a role in and the list goes on and on let alone you obviously made reference to fulfillment so you know I I, the fundamental change that I've seen is that in our first pilot getting merchants on board for our first pilot in Oakland that was that's been the easy part 
And that has historically always been the hard part yeah. is to get no. the local businesses to participate. And so to me, that's a fundamental shift, that uh, is which is what shift. like motivated me to take the sleep and start the business. So, so I certainly think it's here to stay, but I will say like the, I don't know, ethnographer or something in me thinks that there's going to be a little period where people are like, let me out of my house. Like, I don't want to look at screens. <laughs> I want to go to music festivals and dance in the park. Oh, and, sure. like, and so there's going to be this moment where I think we're all going to sort of like suck in some air and be like, wait a second, like, is it, was that here to stay or not? But I do think it's temporary. And I think that this is part of a longer trend and we experience the rapid upside and we're going to feel a little bit of the adjustment as we all get some freedoms back. But we all know the roaring twenties. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's going to be some things that fall back. Mm -hmm. It's, I think everyone's calling it shot girl summer. Right. <laughs> because everyone's <laughs> going to have their shots. And I don't know if you saw the news. I, I, I want to be clear. When Jana says everyone's calling it that, she means her new 20 year old TikTok new, friends. I, I, I wasn't going to point that out, but I was like, everyone. That you you know, everyone. And of course, everyone. I was like, you mean like doing shots? <laughs> like you, I, I get it. You, I get it now. Back, vaccinated. People. Yes. Um, I don't also don't know if you guys saw, but White Claw put more alcohol into their White Claws. And I think it's in honor of Shot Girl Summer. <laughs> was that necessary? I was about to say, wasn't there enough? I, mean, I thought that was I thought that was kind of the point was that it was like somewhere between LaCroix. LaCroix? LaCroix? Where are we on that? LaCroix. That- no, we're at LaCroix. We're at LaCroix. We're at okay. LaCroix. But okay. yeah, I agree with you. Wasn't it supposed to be like a light? Mm-hmm. Not for shot girl summer, you guys. You need more. Good to know. <laughs> Not for this summer. This summer is going to be. So you're also an active angel investor. How has that for a pivot? Um... Uh-huh. <laughs> I am. Well, it's a good pivot. I actually do, as you all are doing. I care a lot about making investments in certain kinds of people and companies that might not always get in front of folks. Mm -hmm. I don't do that exclusively, but I have an angle on that. And I think you guys care as I do about more women on the cap table. Yep. Yep. And I care about especially women and historically underrepresented group founders getting the same access uh, that others are getting. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, I probably angel invest more for that reason. I'm not like looking for, I don't know, everyone's, you know, celebrating their, any recent investments that are doing well. I think it's not about that for me. It's about how can you create a more level playing field Yeah, yeah. for great ideas, for mm-hmm. great people and great ideas. And so, I mean, with Stripe being so massive, so what areas do you invest in? Um, that's always a, like an interesting question when you're an operator as well. Yeah. I, I skipped out on like the whole run up around like SaaS companies while I was running product at Slack, for example. And people later are like, why aren't you in this one? I'm like, well, because I was working. You know, that, yeah. was, that was a feature we were planning to build. <laughs> I've always been drawn more to B2B again, and because of like economic infrastructure and how can you help? Um, create jobs. And so most of where I end up, I mean, I'm lucky. I know people like both of you, but I have some folks who send me great companies. And Mm -hmm. I think what I end up being drawn to, and I don't have a lot of time to do diligence. And I do like one meeting and I'm trying to like figure out the business, figure out the person, you know, and and see if I could add value. Honestly, I think, you know, it's like be a strategic investor. I actually want to be strategic. (laughs) And so I want to say like, do I have anything I could help you with that, that would be useful? 
but mostly it's it's B2B and it's actually it's the thing that's beneficial is having gone through the last seven years of Stripe is like what products would we would have liked to have? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I invest yeah. I find I'm investing. And of course they're coming to me because they know I'd be the buyer. Right. But not for all of them, but for a lot of them. And so that's mm-hmm. why it's easy to also do the diligence. I'm like, would I buy this? Right. You know, as as the business buyer and and that's been fun. It's fun to see some of these products. Mm-hmm. I know you also sat on the board of Hallmark for like oh. six or seven years. And that's like, I mean, like a hundred and something year old company. It is. Tell us a little bit more about that experience and like what's relevant from that experience that applies to tech. Yeah. I mean, I, I joined the Hallmark board when I was still at Google and I think people were like, what? But for me... One, I think it's really exciting to get to figure out how does a company be a hundred year old company? Like, what are they doing that created this legacy and this product set? Um, to the executive team and the other board members, like such high quality people that I knew I could learn from. Like, and I wanted to learn how to be a good board member. And also I wanted to help. Hallmark is an interesting company. It has the Hallmark cards business, but it also owns Crayola. And it also owns Crown Media, which is all the Hallmark yeah. channels. And Crown Media was interesting because it was public, but we took it back private. It was primarily owned by Hallmark, but not completely. And so I was part of like figuring that strategy out. But it was like they had these great assets and needed to recognize the world had changed. And the CEOs, who's the grandson of the founder, like really motivated, really bright and sharp and which you can sense, right? You're like, okay, this person is high quality, wants to do things differently, is trying to figure out the strategy. And to see inside a company in the Midwest, by the way, employs thousands of people who mm-hmm. have these great, a lot of them are creatives, right. have these um, important jobs. Very progressive company was one of the first companies to have LGBTQ like benefits. Um, I mean, a lot is like, Hallmark is a very interesting, very strong culture. Um but a very nice culture, as you can imagine, and they needed to make change. So that was interesting to watch. <laughs> uh, but the main the main thing was was figuring out that culture, how you build it, how you inculcate it, but also figuring out what does the future look like. And that's what gives you insights when you're in Silicon Valley. First of all, you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, the world is really different than Silicon Valley. <laughs> Every time I went to a board meeting, I was like, whoa. Very different. Um, and that was good. Reality check. And reality check on the buyer of any of this tech. Like eventually you want Hallmark to buy these products. You want Hallmark to use Google ads. You want Hallmark, you know, yep. to use Stripe. Yep. Uh, and the legacy stack is of such an albatross. It is mm-hmm. crazy. And the security issues, by the way, they're all like, oh my gosh, the amount of time we spent on cybersecurity as a board was 10x what I expected and I expected it, but I was like, this is really scary for companies that don't have a lot of in-house technical talent and are relying on these consultants and they have a legacy stack that is like completely brittle and not using APIs. And I, and it just gives you a lot of understanding of, okay, if we're going to actually sell into the enterprise (laughs) as any tech company, we are going to have to confront all of this mm-hmm. uh, and add value. Um, yeah. And that's the only way you're going to save those thousands of jobs. 
yeah. uh, it, their strategy and their execution, but also they're going to have to, you know, have a completely new platform. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the options are still not great for a lot of the ERP stuff. You guys know that, right? Yeah. I mean, yep. right. So, and doing a project like that is terrifying because you could take down your whole company trying to like migrate. Um, so I know I sound excited about this really like thorny. I love nasty stuff. That's like constraining you from your future (laughs) vision. And like, how do you like make the hard call and get through it? Yeah. But it was a huge reality check in a good way. Uh, Especially if you're going to be involved in any kind of sales, which I always have been, Mm -hmm. which is if you're not sitting in the seat of the customer and you get like what they're going through, you're just not very effective sales leader. Yeah, I think that, you know, figuring out ways for more Silicon Valley founders to get like a day in the life um, would be so valuable. Not all of them can go take board seats in these companies and that sort of stuff. But I, um, you know, we do we do operate within a bubble sometimes. And yeah, I think it's when you're trying to sell enterprise software and, you know, the first time you hear on prem and you're like, oh, we don't do on prem. And then you realize you're going to answer that question like in every meeting for the rest of your uh, your time at the company. And you're like, okay, this is the world is not all operating on the same set of assumptions. And that's exactly. like the tip of the iceberg. So Yeah, or what yeah. you're doing with local businesses. Until you've yeah. walked in the shoes of a local business or worked in one, you're not going to build a great product for them. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think it's like even more broad in just terms of a functioning society. And it's like, yeah. you know, obviously our country's become incredibly divisive a lack of understanding and empathy of Mm -hmm. the other situation that's really true like I grew up in a very small town of like 1500 people in the midwest and um you know I think the stuff that we worry about day-to-day in Silicon Valley is just so far from what most of the people I grew up with are worrying about and the more that we could bridge people to actually get to know people in both, you know, both, both types of areas, I think would be really helpful for us. Yeah. I think social media like aim to do that. And unfortunately, um, has probably put us more into silos and bubbles than we ever would have thought it would have. But, but also the role that ML and AI and the yeah. algorithms are playing in a, you know, yeah. I mean, I actually invested, one of my investments is a company um, called Arthur.io that is working on like meta monitoring of your models. Mm-hmm. And are your models biased? Are they yeah. um, are they serving your your business well, essentially, and your mission? Right, right. Which I think is, of course, we didn't. You know, everyone had the best intentions. I honestly believe, but yeah. then we went down some roads that I think if we'd been monitoring how how the models were creating the silos. Mm-hmm. Well. Claire, we always love to wrap up. We're going to put you on the spot just a little bit. Um, But we always love to ask our guests, who's one person that's just been really influential in your life as a mentor or just somebody who you've always relied on for guidance? You know, I'm actually a believer in the collection of mentors, right? People that you call for different kinds of things who really tell you that, like, the truth to your, you know, you got to think about this differently. I, I think an obvious person earlier in my career is definitely Cheryl Sandberg, and she certainly yep. uh, taught me a lot and opened up a lot of doors for me. I think more recently, it is a combination. I also went to a couple of talks, I'll say, where I got to hear Condoleezza Rice speak. She spoke at a conference I was at, and then she came to Stripe and did a talk for us. Amazing. She is a very wise woman, mm-hmm. and we do not always share the same views. But she is an incredibly wise woman, especially about 
thinking about sort of your impact and your passion and what you're good at and like how to make that combination. Like a lot of good career advice from her. Um, of course, I don't really know. I've met her, but I don't know her personally, though. She is. She does teach a class at Stanford with a friend of mine who's very inspiring. And so through my friend Amy, I get to get my mm-hmm. Condoleezza Rice advice and my Amy advice. Um, but I think a lot of women who have been CEOs inspire me. You guys know probably Stacey Brown Philpot, who was yeah. the CEO of TaskRabbit, became a CEO. I think she's going to be a CEO somewhere again. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a wise woman too. She mm-hmm. uh, definitely tells me like it is, and she's mm-hmm. very clear about her decisions. Um, and then some of the the founders I'm investing in right now who happen to be women who are like killing it. And the thing that's inspiring there is they're very confident. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about imposter syndrome and I kind of sick of it. Like a lot of these, they are computer scientists, they know their shit and they are building something interesting. And I love talking to them. Yeah. I mean, they're humble, but they're confident. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a pretty winning combination. Yeah. I remember Jessica Verrilli, um, one of our partners, um, talking about some of the founders she's backed that are, you know, a little, a few years younger than her. So maybe, you know, early millennials um, and how, um, uh, how confident and how clear minded they are about both, um, complex um, business issues, but also like the social issues and implications. And I, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think I definitely feel like there's a lot that we can learn from some of the folks that are coming up after us um, and some notes we can take from them. Exactly. Right. Which is awesome. We're coming full circle to our multi-generational learning (laughs) learning network. Yes, exactly. Don't worry, guys. I've got all the 20 year olds if you need some new friends. We got the TikTok people. (laughs) We got got the the neighbor. I got the neighbor. Well, we are just so grateful to have you on here. We've been um, just so in awe of your leadership and the impact that you've had at Stripe um, and and rooting you on, not that you need any amount of um, cheerleading from the sidelines, but you're getting it nonetheless. Well, you all have been great in that way. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you, Claire. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. Thank you, Claire. I did the waving thing. (laughs) I can't not wave. I'm too old to not wave. I don't even know how to hang up. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. To keep up with Claire, you can follow her on Twitter. She's at C. Hughes Johnson. Next up on the pod, we sit down with Jessica Ewing. She's the CEO and founder of Literati, a subscription book club that we've backed here at Hashtag Angels. Also, if you're enjoying the pod, please give us a rating or leave us a review. It helps for people to discover us. Or give us feedback on Twitter. We're just at Hashtag Angels. The Hashtag Angels podcast is a production of H Industries. The episode was produced and edited by Matt Herrero, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.